So if you've closed your Bible, then you must open it again at John 1, verse 18. John 1, verse 18, and the theme, Knowing God. In Afrikaans, om God te ken. Knowing God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord our God, of all things that can be known in this life, of all things that can be known in the world and in the universe, there is nothing perhaps we lack more than the knowledge of God. And maybe this is not the highest and the greatest desire of our hearts, Lord, because we don't really know what it truly means to know God. But please would you reveal that to us. And please will you show yourself to us this evening. Living God of heaven and earth, the Lord of glory, please open our minds and speak into our hearts the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I typed on Google and I typed top 10 questions asked by people. And they gave you the top 10 things people ask the internet. Mrs. Google. Or is it Miss Google? <laughs> and it's questions like, the, the top question is, what is my IP? IP is Internet Protocol. Uh, and then in the top 10, you'll get questions like, when is Mother's Day? How to tie a tie? Uh, how to lose weight fast? <laughs> what time is it? And so on. And in the top 10 questions, you can even go further and say the top 50 questions. No questions about God. Because you see, the Bible teaches us in Romans 3 verse 11, no one seeks God. If you seek God, it's because He first sought you. People are not interested in God. Actually, what people do when it comes to God is they run away and hide, like Adam and Eve. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, they felt guilty, and they hid themselves between the trees in the Garden of Eden. Or the Israelites, when God spoke the Ten Commandments, the Israelites stood at a distance. They didn't want to come closer. They were afraid. And even Christians, even as Christians, sometimes we want to run and hide. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. When you're in, in conversation, and you're in the presence of a very holy Christian, you feel uncomfortable. And those are the kinds of people you secretly don't invite them to a bride. You might invite other people, but these people who are really holy, you don't want them there. You're afraid one of your friends might say something stupid or sinful, or do something sinful, and then this holy person is there, this really devoted Christian. So what we do as Christians is, is we pull away, we, draw, we pull away from God, it's like we go back into the shadows. I don't know if you've, if you've had this experience, I've certainly had it, 
had this experience where you're on your knees in prayer or you're reading the Bible and it really moves you or, or you're sitting listening to the preaching of God's word and it's, and it's really moving but it's like you want more but you don't want more. You're afraid. It's like you, you want to, okay, I've done enough praying now. Uh, I've done enough reading of God's word now. It's like it gets too much because we're sinners and this is a holy God. We want to get away. You find this with people, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is, this is always the case, but sometimes if you find someone after every service, they're in and then they're out, and immediately they leave. They don't want to mingle. Sometimes a reason may be exactly this thing I'm talking about tonight, is there's this distance, there's this being afraid. And sometimes you find that with people who, who stop coming to church. It's that same thing. There's this being afraid. Of the holiness and the awesomeness of God. Especially if the word cuts you. When you're listening to the sermon. and You see that. Go out the door. I'm not going to talk to anyone. Now please. If you have to leave in a hurry tonight. We won't think you. <laughs> you're running away. But you get the point I'm trying to make. And you see God is not like that at all. Yes God is a holy God. But God wants a relationship I can almost use the word crave. I don't think it'll be too strong. Almost God craves a relationship with his people. And you see this, for instance, in the book of Exodus, where God leads his people out of Egypt, and God wants to be among his people. God wants his tent among the people. Not just there far on the mountain with Moses up on the mountain. God wants his tent. He wants to dwell and live with his people. But there's a problem. And the problem is we are sinners. So how can we be in the presence of a holy God? And God gives the solution. God gives priests and God gives animal sacrifices. So that the animal will die in the place of the sinner. So the sinner can, can live in a relationship with God. Now, those animal sacrifices were just a picture. It's all a picture of Jesus and the tabernacle, the tent. Uh, Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the tabernacle. John 1 verse 14 it says he came and he dwelt among us. The Greek word there is he tabernacled among us. He put his tent among us. And Jesus is then the ultimate sacrifice. Who dies in the place of sinners so that we can now come. We don't have to die. We can come into the presence of an awesome God. Of a holy God. So we can now know God. Through Jesus. Let's read John 1 verse 18. You can follow on the screen if you wish. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Alright? So let us answer a few questions this evening. First question, who is He? So we say knowing God, who is He? Did you see that book called Heaven is for Real? And then they turned it into a movie not long ago. So it's about this four-year-old boy, he had an issue with his appendix, I think it burst or something of the sort, but then it poisoned his body and it says that apparently this boy died for I don't know how long and then he went to heaven and don't know how long either, but then he gives some descriptions of what he saw and he says that he saw that the Holy Spirit is blue and he saw God the Father is awesome and magnificent and like this giant uh, but he can't describe him. It was too awesome. And Jesus is a white European male with blue eyes. And for that 
time that this boy says he was in heaven, he got a halo and wings. And everyone, Christians who die, you go to heaven, you get a halo, a shiny thing above your head and wings. It's actually a bit too small for your body. <laughs> That's the imagination of a child. Uh, and the imagination of a child cannot be the standard by which we measure what is true and what is not true. The Word of God, the Bible, gives us, is, this is the standard by which we measure truth and error. And all those things the little boy said, the, the things I just mentioned, none of that is in the Bible. Especially not that the Holy Spirit is blue and that he saw God the Father. That is nonsense. Verse one says, no, 18 says, no one has seen God. No one. And that is referring to the Father because he continues in saying, the only God is at the Father's side. No one has seen God the Father. The Father is invisible. God is a spirit. John 4 verse 24. John 6 verse 46. Jesus himself says, no one has seen the Father. Only Christ, he who is at the Father's side. 1 John 4 verse 12, the same. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17 speaks of God as the invisible God. The Afrikaans, the onsinlike God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16, no one has seen God or can see God. It is impossible to see God. Paul, when Paul had a vision of heaven, he went to heaven. In 2 Corinthians, he speaks of himself in the third person, 2 Corinthians 12. And he says that the things he saw there and the things he heard there, it is too wonderful. He cannot explain it. He, cannot, he was forbidden to speak about it. And he only spoke about it for the first time 14 years later. But now people make lots of money and make book, write books and, and, and make DVDs, make movies about that and make lots of money. So it doesn't sound like the real deal. Uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he has a vision of heaven. He goes to heaven. And what does he describe when he speaks of God the Father? He sees this throne. And then he describes, he describes this, this brightness, this brilliance, this glory, this glow, this awesomeness. But he doesn't describe God. He never does because John himself says here, no one has ever seen God. You see, if people have seen God, if that is true, all these people who go to heaven every now and then, every few years someone goes to heaven and comes back and writes a book. If that is true, that people have seen God, then that, apart from the fact that it's, it's not in line with this verse, but that makes nonsense of the second commandment. The second of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not make an image of God. And the reason you shall not make an image, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12 and verse 15, you saw no form when God spoke to you. You didn't see God. You just heard the voice speak. Therefore you cannot make a star or a sun or image of a moon or a cow, even if it's a golden cow, a golden calf and say, this is what God is like. You cannot Make anything and say, God is like this. Because he is not. In the book of Acts chapter 17 verse 29, Paul actually speaks to people who worship idols. And he says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Because God is not like a human. He made man in his image. Don't make God in your image. Don't make little statues of gold and silver and say, this is God. Because this is not God. 
And that is a great problem with the book called, a uh, book by William P. Young called The Shack. That book portrays God the Father as a large black woman and says, this is God the Father. That is a problem with a children's Bible that we had when my children were small. And that is the problem with Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. When he paints God as a European white, uh, a white male with gray hair and a gray beard. Or the children's Bible my kids had and we with permanent marker, so they can't look at that picture where God creates the world and this is old man with white hair and a white beard. Now people may ask me, but what about Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, where it speaks of the ancient of days, about God seated on the throne and his hair is white like wool. What about that? Well that is called, what we call in theology, and don't be afraid of the word, I'll explain it, an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism. Anthropos, you've heard of anthropology, the study of humans. So anthropos, man, and morphe, form. So in human form, God explains himself in human form sometimes in the Bible to help us understand. Almost like if you're going to explain something really difficult to a little child, then you explain it in very easy terms that the child can understand. And so that's what that verse is doing. And it is true that at times in the Old Testament, God did appear in human form. He did come, for instance, in Genesis 18 to Abraham. These three men appeared. Two were angels and the one was the Lord Jesus Christ. So still, it's not God the Father appearing. Jesus has always been the one who makes the Father known, the one who reveals the Father. As verse 18 says, He has made Him known. Even in the Old Testament, not only in the New but if I can make a general statement that this verse makes, God is invisible. No one has seen God. And that is what atheists laugh at. That is when pagans come and pagans, people who worship idols, they laugh at us and say, where's your invisible? How can you worship an invisible God? How can you say you believe in a God you can't see? How can you say you worship this God and you can't experience him with your senses. You can't smell him. You can't taste him. You can't touch him. You can't hear him. Well, that's not true. You, you can't see him. How can you believe in such a God? You see that in Psalm 115 verse 2, where the heathen, the, these pagans, they laugh. Where's your God? Where's your God? Well, my response to that would be, I would like to ask the, the idol worshiper a question. How do you take a piece of wood and you carve it into the form of a man or an animal and you dust it with gold or you paint it silver and then you bow and say, this God made me? That is stupid. Don't call my religion stupid. Or I would ask the atheists. The atheist tells me, how can you believe in a God you can't see? My question would be, how can you believe in the Big Bang? That everything that exists comes from a speck. Did you see the Big Bang? Did you see evolution? Macroevolution? You see, God is like the wind. Temba, you and I, we explained this to you yesterday. So God is like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can see the effect of the wind, what the wind does, but you can't see the wind. And so God is the same. You can't see God, but you can see the effect of what God is doing. 
Or it's like footprints. I can say God is like footprints. You see footprints. You don't know who made them. But you know someone made them. And the same with God. You can see what God has done, although you didn't see the one who made these footprints. So the, the evidence for the existence of this invisible God, it's everywhere. There's evidence for him. There's evidence in creation. You can take a butterfly or uh, planet Earth or a leaf. You can pick a single leaf from a tree. You can look at a flower. You can look at the design of a bird's wings. You can look at the eye of an octopus or the human eye. And you can see there's design. Romans 1 tells us that's one way we know that God exists. There's a designer. And the design that God does, everything, there's cause and effect for everything. So, for instance, a tree. Where does a tree come from, Amelia? Where did the seed come from? Where did the tree come from? A seed and a tree and a seed and a tree and a seed. And eventually you go all the way back. Where did the first tree come from? So cause and effect. Or what about moral values? Right and wrong. Morality. And even your conscience agrees. When you do something, your conscience accuses you and says you're doing wrong. Or your conscience excuses you. Where did that come from? Who decided what is right and what is wrong? Does everyone just decide for himself? I told Temba a story yesterday about a guy I evangelized. And when I shared the gospel with this guy, this guy just told me, there's no God. And I said, where does right and wrong come from? And he said, you decide for yourself. And I said, can I shoot you now and just kill you and it wouldn't be wrong? And he said, no, as long as you know the purpose. That is twisted thinking. That is what sin does to your thinking. But there is right and wrong. Romans 2 tells us that and that proves... There must be a lawgiver. And above all, how does God show himself? How does God reveal himself? God reveals himself in Jesus Christ. As verse 18 says, He, that is Jesus, end of the verse, has made him known. So Jesus makes the Father known. Is Jesus, was Jesus a real person who lived on this earth? Don't just say yes because you're a Christian. Do even unbelievers acknowledge that? Yes. That is a fact of history. Jesus Christ existed. And there are many witnesses, many witnesses, overwhelming evidence of his miracles, his teachings, his death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection. Many people saw him and even touched him. And many different groups of people saw him. So that is evidence. And how do you know that the witnesses, the people who saw Jesus, how do you know they didn't just make up these things and then they, they wrote it in history books and say, these are facts. How do we know they didn't make it up? Two reasons. The first, or two ways. The first way we know they didn't make it up is Jesus transformed them. They were completely changed forever. Like the Apostle Paul on his way to kill Christians. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and saves him. And he turns him into a person who then, after his eyes are open again, immediately starts preaching. The same Jesus he hated, now he preaches the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. And then many of us, well, all of us, if you're a Christian, you've been changed. And then the second 
piece of evidence that we know they didn't make up these stories about Jesus. They were willing to die. Will you die for something you know you've made up? Will you die for something you know is a lie? Now, Jesus didn't just say, he didn't just come and say, Oh, I am, I am the invisible God who has now become a human. No, Jesus proved that by coming back from the dead, by the resurrection. Now, if you're sitting here tonight, you're listening to this sermon online or the recording later on, and you're not a Christian, and you say, how do I know these things are true? I doubt these things. I want to challenge you. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be biased. Nee, before oordeeld. And you say, I don't believe the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't believe the stories of Jesus in the Bible. And the reason you don't believe it, because you've never read it. You've just heard what other people have said about it. I want to challenge you to put away your prejudices, to put away your bias, and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for yourself, and you will see. If you really come and say, I want to understand, if this is true, O Lord, show me. God will show you. Maybe you're a Christian, and you're sitting here, and you're doubting, or you're listening online, and you're doubting. You wonder at times, I wonder if is this really true. Then I want to challenge you. Go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John again. And pray as you read it, and you will see the logic of it. You will see that it is based on historical fact. You will see it is truth. And you will see Jesus is who he says he is. He is the invisible God who became a man. If that is not true, then Jesus is what we call a megalomaniac. Then Jesus is obsessed with himself. Then Jesus is this crazy person who made claims to be the Son of God, who made claims to be the Savior of the world. That is zeker die ergste soort selfgecentreerdheid wat jy kan kry. That is so self-centered to say to people, I am the Savior, I am the Lord of glory, all these things Jesus said. How do you say that if it's not true? So either Jesus is a crazy person or Jesus is who he says he is. He is the true God who became a man. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. The Word became a man. Jesus called himself the Son of God. Jesus said, that God is his own father. And the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because they said in John 5 verse 17, how dare you, 17 and 18, you who are only a man, how dare you call God your own father? You are making yourself equal with God. They knew exactly what Jesus meant when he claimed to be the son of God. They knew that means he's equal to God. In John chapter 10, they wanted to kill him. And he said, why do you want to kill me? What, what good work are you going to stone me for? And they say, they said, it's not for a good work we're going to stone you. But we want to kill you because you being a mere man, make yourself equal with God. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Thomas knew that. Thomas, after the resurrection, didn't Thomas say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So Jesus is the only true God. Verse 18, the only God, it says. 
The, no one has seen God, but the only God has made this God known. So it's one God, but there are two persons here. Or in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it speaks of Jesus as the true God and eternal life. But God the Father, in John 17, verse 3, he's called the true God. So who's the true God? The Father or the Son? And the answer is, yes. <laughs> so it's obvious, if you look at that, Jesus is the true God, the Father is the true God. It's obvious that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's not different gods. This is one and the same God. One and the same God. Because verse 1 again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Hmm. So there's two persons, one God. You find that, for instance, when Jesus was baptized. The Son is baptized, the Son of God, the Spirit comes upon him, and the Father says, this is my Son. So it's different persons. But baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. One God, three persons. Now, in verse 18, when it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God. That word, only God, uh, the, the Greek word there, and I'm going to say, I'm, I'm not, I don't usually say Greek words, but I'm going to say this word, it's monogenes. Mono, one. And genes, genes, kind. One of a kind. This is the only one of his kind. There is no one like Jesus. He's one of a kind. Uh, Jesus is the only one who from all eternity comes forth from the Father. He's begotten by the Father. He's the only Father for that. It didn't happen at some point in time. Other, otherwise, Jesus is a created being. It's almost like if you have an eternal sun, an eternal sun rays. The sun rays come from the sun. And so Jesus is eternal. You'll have eternal sun rays, eternal sun. The Father is like the sun, and then Jesus is like the eternal sun rays. So in a sense, we can say the unique Son of God, the unique God, the one-of-a-kind God, not even the Father and the Spirit in this sense is like Jesus, because the Father does not come from the Son, the Son comes from the Father. So, he is unique in that sense, the only God God, or the only God of God, so if that is true, I want to help you, I'm not criticizing anyone. Once one of my kids prayed like this, and afterward I just drew them aside after a prayer meeting at church, and I said, come here, I want to just help you with something. Don't pray and say, Father, thank you that you, that you so good to us, and thank you that you became a man and you died for our sins. The Father did not become a man and die for our sins. The Son did. Jesus, do you see any? Yeah. So don't get your theology uh, mixed up there. Okay, further, verse 18, he says, The only God who is at the Father's side. Now, in the ESV, he said at the Father's side. Actually, the Greek there says, you'll see a number, if you have an ESV, you'll see a little number, and at the bottom of the page it says, In the Father's bosom. Against the Father's chest. So if I tend the Father's abortus. Where does that picture come from? You remember when Jesus um, inaugurated the Lord's Supper? And it says that 
that while they were, they didn't sit at table like we do today. You lie at a very low table, you lie on your elbow um, like this, and then you use your right hand to eat. And so because you lying like this with your feet, if the table is here, you put your feet toward the back, and then the guy next to you, his head is here, and his elbow is here, and so on. You get the picture. It's like, no, Eddie, it's caramel. But then it says, John lay his head against Jesus' chest. And John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So that is, this is a very intimate picture of true friendship, of deep friendship that John has with Jesus. And this is now the picture here. Jesus, Jesus the son, is against the father's chest. That's literally what the Greek says. So it's like there's an intimacy, there's a friendship from all eternity, there's love, there's fellowship between the Father and the Son, as I explained this morning, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit communicated. The Heilige Geest draai die liefde tussen die Father en die Seen in mekaar oor, en die gemeenskap en die vriendskap. And Jesus knows everything the Father thinks, and the Father knows everything Jesus thinks, this perfect communion. Uh, now, you listen to this, and as I was preparing that, is there anything in you that says, I want to know this God. I want to know this God. I want to have fellowship with, with this God. And when I say, I want to know this God, I don't mean, Jenna, for instance, you're busy studying. I don't mean knowing the facts of some uh, subject you're doing, maybe science or biology. I don't know what your smart and clever subjects are. I don't mean just... Just getting facts in your head. Oh, I want to know God. No, no, I mean, I mean know, him, know Him like you know your best friend. That kind of know. Knowing like a, a husband and wife with a good marriage. The way that husband and wife know each other. That's the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. And you can know this God. You can know this God in a very intimate and very close relationship. Once at a conference, a, a preacher from Wales... He said something, and this is, this is in 2008, and I'll never forget this. He said, here's, here's the life of God. The life between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this life, and joy, and love, and peace, and fellowship. And you know what God does while this life is going on? When Jesus saves a sinner, He takes that sinner out of this world... And he brings him right into that circle. And God, you don't become God, but God puts his very own nature inside of you. Do you want proof of this? Second Peter 1 verse 4. We have become partakers of the divine nature. God places his very own life inside the sinner. So this life between Father, Son and Spirit, you brought into this. And then Jesus says in John 17... Verse 21 and verse 23. Father, just as you and I are one, let my people, let them be one, and not only one with one another, but one with us. Wow. What is the life of God called in the Bible? Eternal life. God now dwells inside of His children by His Spirit. And God brings us 
As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Wow, that's big. That is big. To think that you can be brought into the circle, how? Through your union with Christ. you one with Him, therefore automatically you are now one with the Father and the Spirit. Now be careful of that, because there are people who believe in a little God's doctrine. They now say, now you are a God. You're not a God, but we, we become one with God and He with us. That's why Paul can pray in Ephesians 3 verse 19. He prays that, the, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now how do you get this life? How do you enjoy this fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Second question will answer that. Question number two. How can we know him? Who can also king? When I was a student studying at seminary, uh, preparing for the ministry, we had a subject called exegesis, exegesis in Afrikaans. Exegesis means to study a, a text of the Bible, to study a passage of the Bible, and to study and study and study and, and to strip it and to Get the meaning of words and get the context and to really try and understand, to draw out of that text or out of that passage, what does this mean? Jesus is the exegete of God. Jesus, he does exegesis. I do an exegesis. He explains God to us. He draws out the meaning. Who is this God and who knows the Father better than the Son and the Spirit or the Son by His Spirit? So, he explains God to us. The Greek word here in verse 18 when it says he has made him known, that's the Greek word exegesis, exegeomai. That means to draw out, to explain, to expound, to unfold, to declare. No one can give you the knowledge of God except Jesus by his spirit. He makes God known. I can explain all of this tonight. If you're not saved, you might as well sit here watching a Coca-Cola advert. You will not understand this. Only Jesus makes the Father known. By the Spirit, He explains these truths to us and opens our minds to understand them. And as I said earlier, who knows Jesus? Who knows the Father better than Jesus? Because He's at the Father's side. He's against the Father's chest. He's in intimate fellowship with the Father. So Jesus, and Jesus only, knows the Father perfectly. Jesus says so in Matthew 11 verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son. And He knows Him by the Spirit. Because in 1 Corinthians 2 says the Spirit knows all the thoughts of God. So then the Spirit too must be God. Because you can't know everything about God and not be God. <laughs> so Jesus then comes. And Jesus explains the Father to us. And he did it through, 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 through all of history. When the world was created. You read Genesis 1. And God said. Who is that said? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the said. Jesus is the Word who speaks. Actually, if you go down, I saw this in my quiet time about three weeks ago or maybe a month ago for, a very, for the very first time. I've never seen this. If you read Genesis 1, 
it'll say, and God said, let this and this and this happen. And then God created. Now, I've seen that, but I didn't see, oh, and God said, and then God creates. So the Father speaks, and then the Son is the Word who carries out the command. The Father speaks, and the Son does it. And the Spirit is the one who brings life into it all. And then further on in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament at least, we see that Jesus is the angel of the Lord. Now it doesn't say an angel. Jesus is not an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe he's just some heavenly being that was created by God. That's not true. The word angel means messenger. So Jesus is the messenger of God. Messenger, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is the word, message, word. <laughs> Do you get that? So Jesus is that messenger. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. He's the message or the messenger. He's the word. He's the one in Genesis 3. When you see uh, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are hiding between the trees. And then it says, and God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. Who is that walking there? It is Jesus. Who is the one who appears to Moses in the burning bush? It says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. And when Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Who is that one? Who is the one who speaks the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? Can it be someone else than Jesus? Because isn't Jesus the word that speaks and makes God's mind known to us? Who is the one who appears to Isaiah? In Isaiah 6, seated on a glorious throne. John 12 verse 41 says it's Jesus. Who is the one who speaks to the prophets in the Old Testament? When all the prophets say, before they start their sermon, thus says the Lord. Who is that? Who is that Lord that said? Well, Jesus is the word. So it must be Jesus. All of these cases, Jesus has always been the one who has made the Father known. Verse 18, end of the verse. He has made him known. Now Jesus doesn't come and show us everything about the Father. Because we can never know God fully. We can never know everything about God because God is eternal. How can you know something that never ends? We can't know this Infinite and eternal God. Psalm 145 verse 3. His greatness is unsearchable. But everything that the Father shows Jesus to tell us, that Jesus brings. For instance, in John 12 verse 49 and 50, Jesus says, I speak only what my Father tells me. And everything the Father tells him, Jesus came and he told us. Now in the New Testament, obviously, uh, End of the verse again, he has made him known. Jesus shows us even more about the Father than they knew in the Old Testament. So in Jesus, if you look at Jesus, you have a perfect, there's a mirror, you have a perfect reflection of the Father. If you have the Father here, Jesus, although I shouldn't actually say it that way because it's one God, although it's two persons, but Jesus is a perfect mirror image of the Father. Colossians 1 verse 15, I is the built von die unsinnliche God. So we have that of Jesus. And again, verse 18, he has made him known. Or I can, I can use the illustration of a, a stamp, but not a normal stamp like you and I know with ink. I'm talking more about a stamp where you, you put, the king puts his, uh, he's got a ring and it's got an image there and he puts it in clay or in wax. Now in those days in clay, so you put it in clay 
and you've got exactly the image on the ring, that's what you will see in the clay. So that's what Jesus is. Because it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3, we're saying that. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory and he's the exact imprint of God's nature. Everything the Father is, Jesus is also. You'll find that exact, or can we call it maybe a replica. So it's not true. It's not true to say all roads lead to heaven. All religions believe in the same God. That is not true. Verse 18, only Jesus makes the Father known to us. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said, in John 14, verse 6. And that, my friends, and that, my brother and sister, that goes for the Jews also today. Because some people think the Jews and Christians believe in the same God except they don't have Jesus in the mix. That is not true. Because 1 John 2 verse 23 says, if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. You can't have the one without the other. Jesus alone makes the Father known to us. And even in heaven, even in heaven, you will only know the Father through Jesus. You will never know the Father except through Jesus. And some people see, says, who are we going to see in heaven? Are we going to see the Father? Well, the answer is yes, in Jesus. Because Jesus makes him known. Nee, daar is ons tekst in die Bijbel wat sê, saligstie wat reim van aard is, hulle sal God sien, maar dis dier Christus. Dis altyd dier Christus. You can never know the Father apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said when Philip said, oh, Jesus, please show us the Father and that is enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you? Come on, this is three years, Philip. Haven't you got it yet? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So we know him through Jesus. We know the Father through Jesus. All right, now, I'm going to, for the last, I don't know how many minutes, I'm going to look at different ways how Jesus showed the Father to us when he was on earth. So one way Jesus showed us the Father was by his teaching. And that's obvious. Jesus said that the Father is perfect. In Matthew 5 verse 48, he said that the Father is loving and good. In Matthew 5 verse 45, he said that we have a good father who, get good, uh, who gives us good gifts. In Matthew 7 verse 11, we have a father who provides. Matthew 6 26, we have a father who knows everything that you need before you ask him. We have a father we must pray to him. We have a father who wants us to do his will. Okay, so Jesus taught us about the father. It's as if, it's as if the father said to Jesus, I want you to go to the earth and tell them who I am. And Jesus obeyed. How do we apply that to our own lives? Every Christian needs an accurate picture and an accurate thinking about God, especially as a father. And that would go even more especially for Christians who had a bad relationship with their dads. Maybe you had a bad father. You need this teaching about God as a father. He's a good father. And he's a father who loves his children if we will come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Then we see the names of Jesus. That is how Jesus made the father known to us. Now, John Calvin, he said you can divide everything Jesus did in his work as our, as our savior. 
you can split it up into three main categories. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest and king. Prophet, priest, and king. How is Jesus our prophet? Verse 18. He makes the Father known to us. And he makes the Father's will known to us. He preaches the will of the Father. Like I quoted John 12 earlier on. Or Jesus himself says to the disciples in John 15 verse 15. Everything the Father told me to tell you, I have told you. Okay, so Jesus is our prophet. How is Jesus our priest? He's the priest who brings the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice. And what else did priests do? Okay, they did teach the word to people. That's true. Malachi 2 says that. Yes, the priests prayed for God's people. Does Jesus pray for his children? Yes, Hebrews 7 verse 25. How's Jesus our king? He rules. He rules over his enemies until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110 verse 1. And he will crush his enemies, those who will not bow. In Psalm 2, you can go and read that. Now, if Jesus makes the Father known to us, and Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, I read this interesting thing. I just read the title, and I was curious. It was speaking of Skirach. R.C. Sproul preached a sermon on God the Father as our prophet, priest, and king. If Jesus makes the Father known, and Jesus prophet, priest, king, then there's a certain sense in which the Father, too, is prophet, priest, and king. So I just ate in Skirach, I thought, where is the Father a prophet? Well, the father is a prophet because he makes his son known to us. Remember Peter? When Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but my father. Or the apostle Paul in Galatians 1 verse 16, where the apostle Paul says, the father, God has made his son known to me. God has revealed his son. So the father is a prophet. How is the father a priest? Romans 8 verse 32. God who did not spare his own son, Gave him up for us all. The father gave the sacrifice. He provided the sacrifice. His son. And how is the father our king? That's obvious. <laughs> He's the ruler of the universe. The ruler of all things. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks that way. In verse 25. No, verse 24. And then if you are united to Jesus, if you are one with Jesus by faith, then you too are a prophet, priest, and king. We are prophets, says uh, Acts, Handelinger, Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It speaks of Christians as prophets, and we speak God's word to other people. Even when we make disciples, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. We are priests because we bring spiritual sacrifices. We don't slaughter animals, but we bring spiritual sacrifices like good works and prayer and giving to missions and, uh, and so on. And there are a number of verses in the Bible. I'll just give you one. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. It speaks of us as priests and we bring spiritual sacrifices. And then prophet, priests and kings. Well, we will rule with Christ in heaven. And we will rule with him on the new earth. And that is Ephesians 2 verse 6 and Revelation chapter 5. of Verse 10. And then the character of Jesus. Verse 18, he has made him known. How does Jesus make the Father known? Through his own character. Now, we can say a lot about this. I'm going to give you one example. And that is Jesus loves children. Do you remember that? The children, let the children come to me. Does God the Father love children? Well, if Jesus makes the Father known, 
I mean, the Father is exactly like Jesus. The Father loves children. Why is he called the Father? Not only because Jesus is his son, but we're his children. Uh, by faith in Jesus. And even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 16, God says he's, like he's rebuking the Israelites because they sacrificed their children to these false gods. And he said, why did you sacrifice my children, he calls them. So applications I would draw from that for our lives, I know and I don't hope anyone here supports abortion because that would be against the nature of Jesus. The character, he loves children, the father loves children. If you abort children, then you hate children, you murder them. Now, I don't think anyone here supports abortion, but can I ask you a favor and actually give you a command in the name of Jesus? Don't vote for a political party that supports abortion. Some of you think, yes, I must vote for those people, they'll be a better government, and, and you're voting for political parties that support abortion. And, okay, let's put abortion aside, let's just bring it maybe, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. What about our own children? Our own children, are we investing in them spiritually? Really investing in them spiritually? Or is it all about academics and sports and their future? Don't just go that route. You need to invest in their souls for eternity. In that way you love children just like Jesus loves children and the Father loves children. So don't, many off skip me, don't neglect your children's souls because you're not teaching them the word and you're not bringing them to church. Actually it's like they're at the edge of this, this cliff and there's the cliff goes down and hell is there and it's like you just, by just neglecting and not teaching them God's words, like you're just giving them a shove and God will hold you responsible. And then the works of Jesus. That's another way verse 18 happens. He has made him known. Just look at the works of Jesus when he was on earth. And I'll give you two examples again. The one, Jesus, rose, Jesus raised a dead man from the grave, from the tomb, Lazarus. So Jesus gives life. He is life. And then Jesus gives his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. Is that a reflection of the Father? The Father is life. The Father gives life. John 5 verse 26, John 6 verse 57. You can go and read that. He's the giver of life. And if that is true, you should never think that God does not want to save people. That God does not want to save you. That God does not want to save your children or family members or loved ones. Never think that. You have this, this view of God that is not the view that the Bible gives us. God is the giver of life. He loves saving. He loves to save sinners. And He loves to give life to sinners. John 3 verse 16 that I preached this morning. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus is willing to save you if you're not saved. He's willing to save your family if they're not saved. Your loved ones. And the Father the same. He's willing to save. He's willing to save. How do I know that? Because of verse 18. Jesus makes the Father's heart known to us. Everything the Father is, Jesus says. Let me show you what he is like. So do you want to know this God? Do you want to know this Father?
Do you want to know this Son? Do you want to know this Spirit? If you want to know the Father, then know Him through the Son. By faith in the Son, and through the Word of the Son, and through prayer when you go to Him. Because Jesus said to Philip in John 14, verse 7, not verse 9 that I quoted earlier, where it says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. But in verse 7, Jesus says these words. I'm going to read it to you because I can't quote it from memory. John 14, verse 7. If you have known, had known me, Philip, if you had known me, not only Philip, the other disciples, you would have known my Father. If you want to know the Father, then know the Son. And that knowledge of God is the base and is the ground and is the foundation of all other knowledge. You cannot know yourself properly. You cannot know history properly. You cannot know other people and what's going on in the world and whatever subjects you're doing. Uh, Jenna, you're busy studying at university or kids at school or what's going on at work or what's the purpose of life or where does everything come from. You cannot know anything properly without the knowledge of God. That is the basis of all other knowledge. Because otherwise, without the knowledge of God, your knowledge of everything else will be incomplete and twisted. Even your knowledge of history. You're going to twist it and you won't have God in the picture there. Nothing in this life and nothing after this life is more important than knowing God. And that you can do only through Jesus. Verse 18, He has made Him known. So pray. Pray with Stuart, or was it Robin Mark or Stuart Town? No, it's Graham Kendrick. Pray with Graham Kendrick. Now my heart's desire is to know you, Lord. To be found in you and known as yours. To possess by faith what I could not own. All surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all, I confess. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I feel so convicted almost by every sermon nowadays, Lord. I can hardly preach a sermon without thinking. I am so weak at this. My knowledge of God is so little. And Lord, I don't just want more facts crammed into my head. I want to know you intimately, personally, in a relationship. I want to be reminded of your words. Abraham was called a friend of God. I want to be your friend. And I know you've called us your friends, but Lord, may we know you more and know you deeper. We pray for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen.